I tend to cry at the end of Elf every time I watch that movie. <laughs> That's all about Christmas. I'm a Jew for Christ's sake. So I'm crying <laughs> at the end of a Christmas movie. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Today's guest is an actor, improviser, and facilitator based in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in bringing a unique blend of theater and movement-based training to corporations, nonprofits, and schools. He's also the artistic director of Fake Radio's L.A. premiere old-time radio comedy troupe, with guest stars such as Kids in the Hall, Ray Romano, John Laroquette, and Fred Willard. In 2020, in response to the COVID-19 outbreak, he began offering free weekly improv classes to middle schoolers around the country. He is also a husband and a father. You can find his website in the notes of this episode. So please, welcome to the show, David Koff. Hi. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for being here. Um, hey, I think we're just going to jump into the deep end here, if that's okay with oh, you guys. Oh, shit. Shit. You shouldn't have <laughs> offered that. Yep. <laughs> Famous last words. So you are here to talk about your grief. And your loss. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I've been sitting with some of the different types of grief. It's such a rich and powerful and, and mostly unspoken topic. Mm -hmm. I don't really know where to jump in. So I guess I would ask, are there possibilities for examining more than one type of grief? Yeah, absolutely. It just depends on how long we go on each on each topic. Got it. Well, I budgeted six hours for today's <laughs> perfect, conversation, perfect. so I don't know. Let's do it. It is it is such a a broad question because it is sort of where where do you start, and in a way, that's what I like about it because the topic itself is so <sighs> taboo. Tab well, I guess it's taboo. It's also can be very blurry mm -hmm. and where to start can be right in the middle, can be at the beginning and everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just, I'll just jump in. And it's the, the thing that I don't want to talk about because you're not supposed to, and it's uncomfortable. And basically anytime those kinds of things happen to me, I know it's generally a sign that I, I should. Okay. Yeah. So the, the grief that I want to talk about today is the, the grief of, let's call it the ghost of relationship past. Hmm. Not the grief that comes because your relationship has ended, but the grief that comes because the relationship that you used to have with this person has so radically changed. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So I've been married for, it'll be eight years um, in October. And when I met my wife, I was in my early 40s. She was in her early 40s as well. And we had never been married, either of us. We had not had any children, either of us. And we started the process um, not too soon after getting married because we were in our 40s of trying to start a family. Right. And it took us four tries. We had three miscarriages, which could be its own separate 
conversation Absolutely. with you guys because each of those losses was a type of grief mm -hmm. that hit me hard. But then we got blessed with this lovely child who's now, uh, he'll be three in December. But the relationship that I had with my wife when we were dating, that's gone. The relationship we had when we were married and it was just the two of us, that's largely gone. And the process of getting uh, pregnant a fourth time, which in, in our case required a, a donor egg, and the excruciating pregnancy that happened for my wife once we were finally able to carry to term, um, given our ages and all of the physiological, hormonal, mental, emotional, psychological changes, like our, our relationship has changed dramatically. And so I find myself missing and mourning the relationship that we had previously. We have very little time now. And I'm, I'm told by my friends, hey, hang in there. Those first, you know, four to five years are super hard. And, you know, once they're in school and up on their own and you get some of your life back, it'll change. But where I am now in the process, I find sometimes is, is really hard and you know, we don't sleep a lot. Um, our emotional relationship has changed. Our physical and sexual relationship has changed. Our uh, ability to have time for each other has changed. And then the pandemic hit and that just threw a massive monkey wrench yeah. into anything because, <laughs> well, he wasn't going to school. We were too afraid to send him to daycare. You know, he was 18 months when the pandemic hit and so now we're spending even more time with him, having to juggle parenting and working. And by the end of the day, we're just, we're fucking exhausted. Yeah. So it's been hard. And uh, I don't know about you two. I, and this goes to a lot of what I think is how we raise and indoctrinate the men in our culture. I wasn't prepared for that. No one, no mm. one sat me down. Not my, well, my dad and mom both passed away, which is a topic I had thought I might talk about, but it's been long enough now that I figured this was a, a richer vein to, to tap. But no one ever sat me down when I was younger and said, look, here's what's going to happen. It's hard. Being married is hard. Living under the same roof with anyone is hard. Being a parent is hard. Raising a child is hard. Here are some of the things that might happen to you. Here are some of the things that might happen to your relationship, to the amount of time you have together. Here's what might happen to your sex life. Here's what might happen to your ability to even spend time with friends. Like no one, not even my friends mm -hmm. told me this. So it was just like, poof. And I've been left thinking, wow, not only do I miss the old relationship, but I feel like my friends, my family, and my culture kind of sold me out a little bit. Hmm. No one talks about this stuff. I don't see it on social media. My friends don't talk. My men friends certainly don't talk about it. God forbid they say something that might be um, offensive to their wives. Or I just think we're doing a massive disservice to everybody. Do you think that that, is indicative of a broader issue where we're 
as men growing up, we're not really taught, I think, or of a certain generation, we definitely weren't taught how to deal with emotions, how to, there's so much emphasis put on being strong or getting through and surviving it, but you can't be in survival mode all the time. You have to, that's not living, you know, you have to be able to enjoy things at, at a time. And I just, I wonder if you feel that that's something that is a symptom of a larger problem in that we're not really told what our roles are going to be in those relationships or in, in a household. We're not geared up for that. Yes, to all of that, I think. And again, I should qualify, you know, I'm here to talk about my experiences, my thoughts, my beliefs. I speak for myself, although I've learned over time that usually if I have thoughts and feelings, I'm not the first that has ever had those thoughts or feelings right. on the planet. So, um, but yes to everything that you said, Thomas. Um, I was thinking about crying this past week in, in preparation for our conversation today, just as, as a simple marker of men's acculturations in the United States. And in, when is it appropriate for a man to cry? So we take a look at our TV shows, our movies, and I'm really having a, a hard time like thinking of an iconic scene in a movie where a man is crying. Just off the top of your heads, are either of you able to think of one? I have one, but it's... Is it an American film? It's a, it's, it was a Capote with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. That just popped into my head because he walks into the room to say goodbye to these men because they're going to be executed. And he broke down. He completely breaks down. But the scene is about, is so heavy and what it's about, I feel like maybe that is an acceptable, possibly an acceptable moment. Right. So people dying. Yeah. Right. People dying. Or uh, the, uh, the trope of the soldier on the battlefield who's holding his fallen brother uh, mm -hmm. as that soldier dies and the one who doesn't, you know, crying and telling him it'll be okay. And, you know... I cry all the time. I was just watching Finding Nemo yesterday with my son, mm -hmm. cried. Uh, I remember going to watch Toy Story with my mom. She took her out to go see a movie, cried. Um, I am extraordinarily emotional and sensitive. And for that, I got teased. So to your point, Thomas, not only are, are men not taught to identify with their sadness or their grief or their anxiety or their fear, when they're faced with another man that does, like that person sometimes gets relentlessly teased. So it's, it's in some cases not only not shunned, but it's, it's so threatening that we have to ostracize that person. We won't allow it. We won't allow it in our midst. And so what's left, anger, rage, mm -hmm. it comes those out. are acceptable emotions mm -hmm. for men to have. The self-deprecating humor, that seems to be, you know, I'll, I will insult myself for your uh, comedic pleasure. That seems to be an acceptable emotion for men, or at least a, a behavior that's rooted in a type of emotion. But And those are all deflections. They're all, all ways to deflect. 
what you're really feeling or what you're really going through. And, you know, Jen and I have talked about this a lot. You know, I think the worst part of grief is making other people comfortable with the grief you're having. It's such an unfair thing that we we put people through to say, hey, you need to be not such a mess that it makes everyone uncomfortable. And sometimes life is messy. Sometimes we are internally going through turmoil and headed toward a cliff. I also think something that was really interesting, you were you were talking about those movies, both examples that you you get you guys gave was someone crying over someone else, crying for someone else's pain. But none of us came up with a situation where they were crying for their own feel you know, they were upset for their own feelings or their own pain. It was always putting it into the other person. You know, yeah. I think that again goes back to how we're raised, how we're we're not taught that it's okay to feel things. Are we allowed to grieve for ourselves? Right. David, I wanted to, one of the things that you, the words that you used was expectation and that it's not what you expected, what's happened as far as the beginning of a marriage, having a child, miscarriages, and all of the things that shape it to where it is now. Did you have any expectations? Did you have anything that you actually thought would happen or how you would feel? It's a really good question. And maybe expectation wasn't the right word, but let's just for the moment say that it was. Um, I expected that there would be challenges. I also expected that, you know, we'd work through them in a fairly quick way. I expected that we'd find lots of excuses to have all of our priorities be on the same page or, or united. I th and I think that was the one that was the, the hardest thing to learn that my priorities and my wife's priorities are not always the same. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was uh, perhaps an unfair expectation that I had that's been pretty much blown up. And I should mention I'm not sharing all these things with you both today because I don't love my wife or she <laughs> hasn't lived up to being a great person or woman or my son is such an asshole for being born and interfering with my relationship. It's not right. So I just want to be. Well, I mean, children by default are assholes, right? Like that's <laughs> everyone can agree on that. <laughs> How dare they come into, into our lives world. and disrupt you you things. Are. Who do they think they are? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the notion of I'm, you know, feeling grief or I had my expectations not be met is is not the same as I don't love my wife or we're going to get a divorce or, you know, I suppose that should go without saying. But, but given how stunted Americans are in their sort of social and emotional awareness, I think it's it bears worth mentioning. So, um so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question in regards to expectations, Jen, but I will say, given that I was 43 chronologically, I don't necessarily think I was 43 emotionally or psychologically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm entirely honest, I would say, yes, I did have some expectations. And also, yes, I think some of them were not fair. I put expectations on my wife. I put expectations on me. I put expectations on our community. I'm sure some of those were completely not fair. 
Can you name some of them? Do you remember? Well, I think something that I said at the top of the conversation, I, I would have expected, I would have expected my good friends and family to take me aside and say, we're glad that you found the woman of your dreams. Has anyone spoken to you about what the first couple of years of marriage can or might look like? Has anyone spoken to you about what the process of starting a family might look like? Has anyone spoken to you about going for a little bit of pre-marriage counseling so you and your wife can start to build the tools that you might need as you start your journey together? Just nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Again, maybe that's an unreasonable expectation. But if it is, I think we need to change our culture because there's a reason most marriages end in divorce. And when I say most, right, the statistics are it's more than 50%. Yeah, so yeah, that qualifies. That's most. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, my, you know, my brother, I don't think he knew what he was getting into as well with his marriage. He got married around the same age. And I think he just. He had watched all of his friends have their, for the most part, have their first marriages fall apart and then be remarried. And, you know, he kept saying, I don't want to get married for the longest time because when I get married, it always ends in divorce. And, you know, our parents had been together for 50 plus years. And so, you know, that sets the bar kind of, kind of high. But in reality, it's the questions that we're asking. It's that not to be cliche, but we talk about American exceptionalism, but there's also that masculine exceptionalism where we think I can do this or I won't make those mistakes, but we don't ever stop and ask ourselves what went wrong there? Why did that fall apart? Why did that person cheat? Why did this happen? And I'm not saying that's your situation, but from the outside, I can say, I don't think he, he had the thought, I don't want to get married if I can't make it work, but he'd never thought through what makes it work? How many people do you know that actually have gone down that road and thought about it, though? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. Before they get married. I mean, we teach science, math, history, arts. We do not teach social or emotional awareness or education. We, we don't teach children here are all the different emotions. Here's what they feel like in your body. Here's where in your body you might feel them. Mm -hmm. Here's how you deal with them when they do come up. I mean, I wasn't taught that growing up. I gravitated to theater because at least there I could express a bunch of emotions in a fictional role. Right. And it was yeah. okay to do it there because I wasn't being me. I was playing this other person. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe there are schools that do that now. You know, when I talk to my friends that have kids, I am not hearing about them though. No, I mean, I think some of that comes down to like our construct of gender and what is everybody's role. Because again, I go back to as men, we are taught that you're the provider, you're the protector, you're, and that sounds cliche, but it's everywhere. You're being told that constantly. And then, Absolutely. and then, especially in more, not necessarily conservative, but but a traditional, a more traditional 
area, I would say that the women are taught that you're going to have the children and you're going to have feelings and you're going to take care of the home. And those are broad strokes, but we're pushed from a very early age into those rows or into those lanes. And I don't think those lanes are practical when what you want is a full, fulfilling life and relationship. That's, uh, yes, I'm like taking over the show. <laughs> um, when you, cause you're talking, uh, this is fascinating because everything that you guys are saying, I've been married for 22 years. I got married when I was 26 years old. The time from 26 to now I'm 48. It's everything you're talking about is all in there, is mm -hmm. all in those 22 years smooshed together. Some really, really bad times in a marriage. Some really bad times in myself where what I was feeling, what I was thinking, confusing thoughts and perhaps grief. So I really, I, I'm fascinated that you got married at 43. And so there is quite a bit of time before that of not having a marriage where you're expected to sort of grow together mm -hmm. and change together. And no one told me anything either. And I was quite young. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's this reason that people don't tell you, especially as a woman, that other women don't tell you because they don't want to scare you or they don't want to put any thoughts in your head before you even start on this journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe it's this rugged individualism that we do talk about and we are supposed to feel as Americans where you're supposed to figure it out on your own. And it's such a lack of community. It's like how a doctor won't tell you that it's going to take three months to heal. They'll always say like, you'll eat good as new in six weeks. And then months later, you're still struggling because if they tell you the truth, you'll never do it. You'll never have that surgery. You'll right. And would we that. hear it? Would we accept it? Right. If someone had told me, look, this is, it's hard. Right. And this is how it's hard. It's hard in that you guys are together, but you will grow apart sometimes. Mm -hmm. I had one person say one thing about that topic. It was my mother. Hmm. And I was much younger. And the, the advice was... I want to say I'm much younger, I was in my 20s. And I think I was having a conversation with her about how I was starting to have friends who were moving in with their boyfriends and girlfriends. And she said, don't move in, in until you're married or engaged. And I said, wait, why? She said, because it's hard and you're going to want something to anchor you other than just we live together. And so that vow that you take will be the thing that keeps you together when it gets hard. Mm. And I basically told her to fuck right off because, you know, I was in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> and what does this old broad know? She's like, you know. <laughs> make it really hard for yourself to leave. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that was extremely conservative and I fancied myself very progressive and still do. And even though I rejected much of the advice my mom gave me, I never ended up rejecting that. And so the day after my now wife and I moved in together, I proposed. 
Hmm. The day after, because I wanted to honor that piece of advice from my mom. But that that was it, right? To to your point, she was the only person that said anything to me, and it was this tiny little thing back in my twenties, and that was it. My mother was full of advice on relationships, and <laughs> and I don't I don't mean that in a negative way. It's interesting because I said all of that in the beginning, and then as as you're talking, and I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, no, she never shied away from telling me that there was going to be work, that there was going to be struggle. That, like she would always say, you know, you you better make sure you love that person because you're not always going to like them. And you can either grow together or you grow apart. Like those are the options. And, you know, I think some of it's true and some of it is true for their time period and their generation. But also my parents were a unit. We never really saw them fight, especially not over anything important that they kept that away from us as kids and they were always whether they agreed or not they were always a united front in front of us and so they kind of led by that example and i think that's it's really important because she would say my marriage and my husband are still my priority like i didn't grow up thinking as a child was my mother's number one priority and i'm thankful for that because i think kids that were taught that they were the priority then struggle sometimes in the world not being everyone's priority. Her her viewpoint seemed to be that I want to raise a family, I want to raise kids, but you will eventually, your kids will leave. They will go away and start their own lives. And so what have you created for yourself that's left behind? What is there to fulfill you? You can't put everything just into the, your into your child. And you see that a lot with families that seem, you know, very well held together. And then as soon as the kids leave for college, they're splitting up or they're moving on. So I wonder if that's some of it. You have to stay tethered to that other person. And I think in grief, grieving my family when they've passed away or grieving my mother, it's that feeling of being untethered. It's the feeling of being in a room with people or with another person and still feeling alone that grief imposes on you, if that makes sense. And it maybe didn't because there's complete silence right now. So. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting with what you've said and my silence is not indicative of your words, not ringing true for me. It's. And look, I say this acknowledging out of the three of us, I'm the one without a child sitting here saying these things. So I'm really just kind of throwing thoughts out. Well, you're sharing your your experience. It, it doesn't mean your thoughts or experiences are suddenly not valid because you don't have a child. The, the topic is, is rich enough for all of us to participate. And, you know, I'm just curious, based on what you've said about your parents. And Jen, I don't know if this was the case for you as well, but Thomas was saying his parents were always united front, never saw them argue. Like, Do you feel that in retrospect set you up for success in regards to your own primary relationships with the, the people you fell in love with and, and partnered with? By contrast, my parents, I mean, I grew up in a loud Jewish family. Mm -hmm. There was yelling and screaming and fighting and arguing all the time. There was also, you know, tremendous love and joy and laughter and, and craziness and shenanigans. But we saw fights. And, mm -hmm. you know, I heard my 
dad yelling and screaming with his parents. I, my mom had a contentious relationship with her parents. We like we saw all that stuff. So you didn't. Do you feel that that well, gave you? We definitely saw arguments and disagreements within extended family. I just mean, you know, we didn't grow up in a household that was all sunshine and roses. But I would know if they were having a disagreement. They weren't seeing eye to eye on something. They just wouldn't fight in front of us, which I think did set it up for success. But I'm also from the South where privacy is disproportionately regarded. So maybe that plays into it as well. You know, you don't air your dirty laundry in the same way. Even to your own children. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much um, oppressive (laughs) in that regard. I grew up, I think, in probably a more similar home to David. Mm -hmm. And my parents were both East Coast as well. And there's more of a get in the ring and duke it out Mm kind of Mm -hmm. feel to it, which I don't know, you know, what the effects of that could be. But I think that there is something set to be said about homes. It's not necessarily indicative of a Southern thing, but there is like a, this is what we have to show. Right. Not just to the world, but to our kids. And it doesn't mean that there's no love, but that is something that is shown. And so how do you tell that to your children? Because I have a 13-year-old daughter. And do you tell her everything when she decides maybe someday to get married? Do I tell her the hard truth of this? Why wouldn't you? I would tell her that things are hard. I'm not sure that I would tell her specific things because I don't know if that's her business. It's not their business. You know, when my mom died, my dad started telling me things that about their relationship because he had to talk, like he had to get it out. It was fascinating. I mean, he still never said anything negative necessarily, but I did see a side of their relationship that I hadn't been privy to in the past. And that was really eye-opening for me. But I was also 40. And then when my brother passed away, it even more so, the gloves came off. There are no subjects that are, that are off limits for us now. But The timing is different. Yeah. yeah, the timing is different. And could I have handled that at 20 versus 40? Could I have handled that? I don't know. It didn't, when it did finally come out, I was definitely in a place where it just helped me see the full and rich life that my parents had lived, as opposed to me going, oh, it was all a sham. I never had that thought of like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was happening, or that was, I just, it came out, he would say things, and and I'd be like, oh, okay, that makes, that makes sense, I see how that could happen, or, but it, it's reminding us too that our parents are just people. They have their own hopes and dreams, their own fears, their own goals, and they're just trying as best as they can. And it does play into how much do we put on our parents for those kinds of answers. Mm-hmm. So David, for you, where you are right now, because you're obviously, this is something that is on your mind. Are you thinking about a path forward or are you just are you just here in this time as David Koff with these thoughts and these emotions sitting with them or is there a path forward No there's a path forward you know um what's uh, funny to me because I was always well, I was the last of my 
good male friends to get married. I have one or two now that, that have not, but of, of the people that I've known for the longest and have been the closest with, I was, I was the last of those men to get married. And I was always the one that would get in touch with my friends and, oh my God, and I need help. And this thing happened and these people and that blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> you know, I would be very extroverted about sharing uh, both the joys and the struggles of my life because I needed a community of men to help me along the way. And because I was the only one that was really doing that, <laughs> I felt that, okay, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? What do you mean you were the only I one? I mean, it that? was me going to them, mm. not vice versa. So you asked about the path forward. Yes. In the past couple of years now, some of my good male friends have started to hey, listen, do you have a minute? I need to talk. And this thing that for decades, I thought demonstrated my weakness has now instead been, let's say, reflavored to demonstrate to me that it's also possibly a strength. I now have male friends who are coming to me because they feel that they can trust me and be vulnerable with me and share some of the challenges that they are going through in their lives um, as parents, as partners, as, as businessmen, you know, I have really good male friends. They are kind. They are great family men. They are intelligent, traveled, fun, funny, and, and deeply caring in the ways that they are. You know, when they come to, to talk with me about the challenges that they are facing, they just need someone to listen, to bounce some ideas off of, to ask, hey, have you also experienced this? And to be heard. And those deep male relationships are differ, different than the ones that maybe they have with their therapists. And you mentioned going to therapy. I have um, as well, uh, on and off, mostly on for about 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> Because uh, I think it's an amazing tool. I, I yeah. don't, I, I wish everyone went to therapy because it's part of how I've learned about my emotions. So it's, it's been an amazing journey for me, uh, not because I think I'm broken, but because I think I needed an education. But those deep relationships with men, those aren't the same ones as you might have with a therapist, but they do hit a, some of the same buttons. Yeah. They, they create community, they create understanding, they create a, a deeper sense of connectivity. And so for me, the, the path forward is remembering that, you know, there are times when I will take a look at what is going on around me and I will think this is bad. Hmm. And then something will happen a day, a week or a month later, and I'll go, oh, why that was actually pretty good because I learned A, B, and C. And then a week or a month later, oh yeah, that was bad. And it kind of reminds me of uh, a, a story one of my old teachers uh, told me. The poor farmer who lives in the country has one horse and the horse is amazing. And uh, the neighbor says, wow, you're so lucky. And the next uh, week, the army comes by and seizes the horse because they need to conscript the horse into service. The neighbor says, oh, that's, that's awful. A month passes, the uh, 
army comes back and says, thank you so much for the use of your horse. Here is your horse back. And to say, thank you, we're giving you two more horses. The neighbor goes, wow, that's wonderful. Hmm. And then one of the horses dies. The neighbor says, oh, that's terrible. And it's, it's always A, and how you look at it, and B, where are you in that moment in time? And so the path forward for me is always remembering that, you know, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow will bring another realization or another opportunity. And there will be lightness and celebration and unity. And that eventually that too will be followed by more challenge and more lessons. And that that's the journey, right? It's not the last great expectation that is unfair that I need to break is this notion that every day for the rest of my life will be joyous and happy and delicious mm, right. and free of challenge and worry and anxiety and fear. That is a lie. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that these challenges I've described to you both have made me a much better man. They've made me a much better human. They've made me a much more vulnerable human because, you know, what do you do when the person you love in that moment is not who you want them to be, or they're not saying the things you want them to say? Because that's going to happen. Yeah. You have really a very small, limited number of choices in those moments. You can either say, fuck this, I'm getting divorced and run. You can kind of grin and bear it, but cop a resentment and then quietly seethe. You can give the other person a hug and say, all right, I get it. And we're not going to see eye to eye on this one. And let it go and choose to remember all the things that you do have in common in that moment or all of the topics on which you do see eye to eye in that moment. And the most powerful lesson I've learned from my wife, which I'll take to my grave, is you can lose pretty much everything, but you always have, assuming you have your faculties, you always have the ability to choose what you will focus on. You can focus on lack or negative or what is not working, or you can focus on abundance and positivity and, and what is working. Um, yeah. I have a disease where I tend to focus on what is not working. And my marriage with my wife has forced me to get better at learning to focus on what is working. That's the path forward for me. She's mm -hmm. been my greatest teacher in that regard. I could never possibly thank her enough for that. Mm -hmm. And that's the answer to the question. That's wonderful. It sounds like to me, I hear experience and refinement and there's the the way that you choose to to be with that person and to deal with the inevitable things that come along and when the inevitable things come along and you say accept this moment and accept this person which is good i would say that's positive but are you also able to maintain a connection as that happens, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like well, yeah. when something strips away, is there something that's stronger underneath or is thing, are things just stripping away? Well, Thomas spoke to this, right? In that 
sort of advice that his mom gave him. Sometimes it's really hard to like your spouse or your partner, but if you love them in those moments where you're really not liking them, then you'll be anchored. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that Thomas said is, you know, because in, in that equation, Jen, is this notion of self-care. And Thomas spoke very eloquently earlier about like, how do we, you know, we were talking about the movie scenes, you know, what, what about those times when we're in grieving and what do we do for ourselves? And so the path forward for me, when I think of those things that I decide, okay, well, here are all the things I love about my wife, honor about my wife, appreciate about my wife. Practicing that activity, that mental exercise ends up making me feel better about me. I'm not walking around in physical tension. I'm not holding stress in my body because I think, okay, this is it. I need to get a divorce. We're never going to make it through this. And by the way, I sometimes blow up normal everyday activities in my brain too. If that's it, I'm getting a divorce. So when I say things like that, you have to understand for me, it might mean she didn't say this one thing that I wanted her to say. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And I can, that sort of uh, catastrophizing voice in my brain, which I call Travis. <laughs> I have to name the voices. I do so, that too. Sounds like a Travis. Yeah. Tragedy, tragedy, <laughs> Travis. Uh, so when, when Travis raises his ugly head and voice, my body feels tension. So to what mm -hmm. Thomas said earlier, not only is this an amazing gift I can give to my partner, who I uh, pledge to spend the rest of my life with through, through sickness and health, you know, for better or for worse, but, but engaging in that practice will be better for me. So even though it is this you know, exercise to create unity and, and partnership and harmony between us, it, it has to start with me first because I can't offer to her what I don't have. Mm -hmm. You're talking about something small can happen and it spirals into this larger thing internally with you. And, and I definitely am guilty of that, or not guilty of that, but I have that, that happen as well. And I was reading about anxiety this past week and it was talking about how whenever things seem hopeless or when you're like, how am I going to make it through? Or I'm not, this is just more than I can handle. It's reminding yourself of the times you've thought that in the past and the fact that you did handle it and you did survive it because I spiral out. That's what I do. I become overwhelmed. I play out every scenario that could happen in my head. It's like I'm trying to come up with a plan for how whichever thing. It's like one really bad choose your own adventure all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what's really happening in my head. Day and I work with my therapist a lot to like stay grounded and to stay present in the moment. You don't always, oh gosh, my mother had a lot of really good qualities. One that was not so great that she passed on to me is that I always anticipate the worst case scenario. I am exactly the same and also learned from my mother. I very much had to start consciously making the decision of I'm not going to assume that everything's going to go wrong. And it's much easier said than done. Don't get me wrong. But it keeps me in the moment and keeps me focused on what's going on and what I do have control over. And so I think that, you know, what you're saying is anybody that struggles with anxiety or depression, that's what we do. We blow things up. 
if grief has taught me anything, it's taught me that the same comment can land two different ways from two different people on two different days. I could be offended by it one day and comforted by it the next. And I think we have to all give our partners that benefit of the doubt because life is about nuance. Life happens in all the nuances. It, it doesn't happen in the absolutes. Well, that's uh, yet another thing we don't teach the men in our culture, um, how to understand nuance, how to apologize for when we catch ourselves doing something wrong. These are all valuable skills to learn, um, if for no other reason than being a, a trusted a member of the community mm-hmm. and setting an example for our children. What you do as a facilitator and you work with these corporations, do you think you take this and exercise that with your work as well? I do, but it begins with the notion of what we were talking about earlier, building awareness of emotions. How do you deal with your anger if you can't recognize that you're angry? Mm -hmm. Right. Because anger isn't just, oh, I'm yelling at this person, I might be angry. Anger takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes anger is a quiet seething. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a hotness in our head. Sometimes anger is a low back pain. They're all different types of anger. So a lot of the work that I do with my corporate clients and my non-corporate, my business clients, is designing exercises and games, and those are two words that I use interchangeably, to build awareness of what is happening for everybody emotionally and socially in the moment. That awareness then breeds familiarity. That familiarity then builds increasing expertise and knowledge on how to navigate based on those things. Navigate through their... Through the feelings. Yeah. 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 Navigate through the feelings. And since humans are social creatures, Mm -hmm. no matter what culture we live in, for me, it begins with this awareness of what the emotions are, and then using communication tools to best be able to socialize with others regarding how we're feeling. Do you find that with your work as well? Do you have any kind of reaction from those people that surprises you? Yeah. So I do um, what I would generically refer to as tableau work people who don't necessarily know what a tableau means. It's the equivalent of if I'm a painter painting a still life with objects and I want that to appear on my canvas, I'm asking a group of people to do that very same thing in front of me. So um, they'll announce who they are or what they are. They'll walk out onto stage to join the others in the group and they'll uh, strike a pose that they feel best represents the object or the person that they are representing. A lot of information gets stored in the body in our human existence, but in our American culture, we're mostly a talk it out, go to therapy, talk. We are not a use your body to access the information or release it kind of society. People who Dance maybe have an advantage in this way, or those who practice yoga might have access to it. So some of the tableau work that I do includes people playing characters, expressing an emotion, and then holding a pose. And we are kind of collectively building a visual story 
And one of the sort of culminating exercises I do after I give people a, a variety of different sample situations in which they might find themselves is to just poll, hey, give me something that's going on in your actual life, you know, either in your, your family, your workplace, your community, something that is a legitimate challenge or problem. Two things usually happen. Number one, I'm always shocked by the things that people are willing to offer up. And then two, when we do the exercise, because I structure it in a way that I feel is most um, productive, uh, not just for ruminating in the problem or the challenge, but also right. to generate solutions, is the amount of change in people's body language and then just full on people crying sometimes mm. because there's a release of energy when people are shown three-dimensionally, physically right in front of them. Oh, there's a possible solution for this that isn't just me, but here are 10 people around me who are helping to, to enact what a possible solution might be. I'm not alone and I'm not alone with my thoughts and I'm not stuck in there only being problem, problem, darkness, problem, challenge. Here's a whole group of people that are showing me hope, solution, positivity, and somewhere not too far down the road, change. And that does things to people. Being solution-based, and I just want to give this as a caveat, you're not always there. You're not always able to see that. Yeah, and I some problems can't be solved. Losing yeah. a brother or a parent, that's not a problem that gets solved. That person's gone. Mm -hmm. And so finding a way to make peace with that becomes the journey. And just so I'm clear, the stuff that I am in the example that I mentioned, tableau work, we're not using that to solve problems of, of death or grief. We're using it to solve it. problems that are deep in some cases, truly deep, but not in how do we fix a problem that is not fixable? Because some things in life are immutable. Right. I can't fix that I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Yes. You know, so what I can do then is just work on how do I make peace with that and enjoy the ride. I became a vampire. Well, we all have different that's strategies. <laughs> and that's one of them. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's what I decided to do. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Who am I to judge? Yeah. I'm not. Seriously. Don't judge vampires because yeah. they don't like that. No. Uh, judgment or garlic. That's neither of those things. David, one of the things that we like to do as we're, as we're closing up, and I, I say that because I think the three of us could probably continue this for four or five hours. Um, you know, we always say, what is something about your grief that has surprised you in a positive way or something positive that's happening in relation to that? It's such a rich question. Well, I think I spoke to that a little bit earlier in regards to how powerful a teacher my wife has been for me. But the first mm -hmm. thing that came to mind when you said that was uh, a conversation I had with my dad on his, on his deathbed. And at that particular point, they had already pulled him off of all the meds and food and water, which was part of his living will that he had specified. And normally there was a ton of people around and on this particular 
day and time, I found just some alone time with him, which was a, a rare uh, treat since so many people were coming to pay respects and be with him. And I, I meditated with him. I held his hand and I had said a lot of things to him prior to that, but I, I didn't really say goodbye and it's okay to go. And I did that. And, you know, for days at this point, he, he was in and out of consciousness and, you know, wasn't very communicative and kind of got up on the bed with him and put my head on his chest and told him he was a great dad and, and cried and I'll miss you and, and goodbye. And he inexplicably uh, put his arm around me and squeezed, you know, my hand and, you know, he was there, he heard it. And I got a chance to say goodbye. And I was just bawling. I mean, I was, I, I couldn't even get some of the words that I was so choking on emotion. But just, you know, in my grief, and he wasn't dead yet, but a, a lot of who he was at that point had died. He was a very different person and had very different abilities. I just felt so grateful that I could tell him how I felt and and have the wherewithal to say goodbye and that it was okay for him to go and that it was okay. And this notion of letting those we love know that it's it's okay to go. Um, so I'll remember that forever. Um, and it gives me strength now because how many hellos and goodbyes do we have over the course of our life, right? Mm -hmm. Some people, um, stick around for a while. Others leave either before we expect it or when we realize it's time for us to move along and we say goodbye to them for other reasons, for <laughs> our own personal sanity and health, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the answer to the question. It's a good answer. Fair enough. We also like to ask, and it's along the same vein, is uh, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for, um, at the sake of sounding repetitive, I'm just I'm grateful for my wife being so different than me. The contrast between how she was raised and how I was raised and who she is as a result of that emotionally and psychologically and how vastly that differs from me can be an amazing opportunity and tool for me to transform and grow or a tremendous burden and frustration if I'm underslept and not remembering how tremendous a human being she is. So the choice is mine. I always have the opportunity in the moment to focus on what a, what a gift it is and how grateful I am for that. And today I'm able to be in gratitude for it. That's great. That's wonderful. What about you guys? Hmm? Oh, what well, are you grateful we, for today? Oh, Same. today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. I'm grateful for your wife, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I realize I'm the guest, but I also think at the end of every um, episode, both of you should chime in as well, because this type of stuff changes from moment to moment. Yeah. It does. It does. 
I am grateful to my husband for seeing me and knowing me because he does that. What about you, Thomas? I just got back from a visit with my dad for 10 days. And I think, you know, I'm just so happy that I got to see him again, you know, for the first time since this 2019, since the pandemic mm -hmm. started really in yeah. 2020. And, and for the, you know, the relationship that we have now, we've been through quite a bit, but it's open doors and we've gained a lot of abundance in our relationship through the loss that we've had, the shared loss that we've had. And yeah. while that may sound like a negative, you know, the end result is a, is a really great thing. It's lovely, great. you guys. Thank you. Yeah. David, thank you so much. Well, it All was right. an absolute pleasure, you guys. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Uh, for the opportunity to go deep and talk about stuff that is so important and central to the human journey. 